Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on. No, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. I'll, I'll count you in. All right. Here we are, everybody, in a, a very special, a very special episode of Kicking and Streaming. Perhaps Why is them. it special? Because Chris and I are both wearing purple shirts. We are. Who looks better in the purple shirt? Well, you can't see. We Who can. pulled it off? Listen to the podcast and vote afterwards to let us know. Uh, but it's not only the purple shirts, Chris. It's also... What else could there be? It's also uh, the fact that I can see you in your purple shirt because I am here in your house. What? How did, how did you get here, this Bo? Is, this is... Uh, uh, listeners may not be aware, but it isn't just that you know we speak at different qualities. It's because we're usually on on different mics over a you know yeah. a, a Zoom call or equivalent. Well, yeah, we're actually recording together today to celebrate the operation I had to make my voice box less uh, to get rid of the tinny reverb that's been plaguing me in my day to day. Yeah, and in addition to. You know, wishing away the uh, tinny reverb, we're also celebrating by an episode that is going to be a comparison between a Netflix and a Criterion film, and it's going to be our first comparison that someone besides ourselves would reasonably make. Indeed. This is a... Th- th- these are two films that beg comparison, one yes. might even say. Yes. In fact, these are the, the only two films that we've done so far that, dare I say, other podcasts will likely be comparing. Indeed. Thankfully, we're, I'm sure we'll be the first ones to to the starting line and the last ones to the finish line, as it were. I have no idea what that means, but I'm going to go ahead and say what everybody already knows, because they've already seen the name of the podcast (laughs) episode before they... Don't spoil the surprise, Before we started. What we're talking about today is Rebecca. Rebecca, based on Rebecca. the the novel of the same name by Daphne du Maurier. And we're talking about the 1940 version, Best Picture winner, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And also the 2020 Netflix version that's just come out. It was, what, last week? Just last week, just yeah. Just last week. It's hot, hot off the presses. Yeah, directed by Ben... Wheatley. 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 Directed by Ben Wheatley. So, um, yeah, obviously ripe for comparison. Indeed. Um, Certainly nothing original in our comparing these two. But we hope insightful. Yeah. Entertaining. We're going to... Moving. Moving even. Yeah. Yeah. We may have some some tears shed by the end of this episode once we get to the the heart. And not just because my knees are crammed up against your coffee table. <laughs> Bo gets to see how the little people live. I've got I so so Bo has a nice recording studio because he is a professional voice actor. I myself am an amateur. 
I have a we are we are recording in my living room with this tiny wooden coffee table and uh, the microphone is stacked on a box of Legos with a blanket dra- draped over my uh All right, let's not go. Let's keep it PG. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are there are some impressionable children who listen to this podcast, actually. So one thing I'm kind of hoping to do with this, I mean, obviously the shtick with this podcast is typically what did Netflix do wrong and what did this Criterion film do right? <laughs> and I wish I could say that this will be a little different in that area, but I will say there actually are a few things in the Netflix version of Rebecca that I don't know if I'd say I enjoyed more, but I enjoyed. But I... I hope that in comparing them, we can maybe you can you can we can get into the the nitty gritty of of the thoughts that go into uh, into making a remake or you know an alternate adaptation and where one or the other could have perhaps done better. Yeah, and uh, you know even though this is a more apt comparison, it's still in the spirit of ridiculous comparisons in the fact that you know we're taking one of the greatest directors in all of cinema's history, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, and, you know, uh, pitting a, a film against his, which is never quite fair, but of course is inevitable with the choice to remake something like Rebecca. I mean, Rebecca from 1940, the Hitchcock film, wins Best Picture, uh, gets, let's see, 11 Oscar nominations. Oh, wow. If I'm remembering right. Yeah. And then wins for Cinematography and, and Best Picture. So, oh, good you know, for them. C- certainly not a, a small film. Maybe not as well remembered as other Hitchcock films, but yeah. uh, you know, not not an obscure film to remake. You know, certainly right. taking what could easily be considered a masterpiece by a master filmmaker and remaking that, and you you know, that's never going to be accomplished without a lot of comparisons invited. But you know, in every at, Everybody that goes into this, except for those who, you know, are really not familiar with Hitchcock, is going to be thinking about Hitchcock's film throughout the entire viewing. It's and true. Yeah. That's why it's interesting because I had seen the Hitchcock version before, but you had not. That's your, right. Your the first of the two that you saw was the 2020 version. Exactly. I the 2020 version was my first exposure to the story of Rebecca. I uh, and I consider myself a a a, a reasonably fanboyish fanboy of Alfred Hitchcock. I I like Hitchcock, and I had never seen this. I I, I feel like uh, you know that that Hitchcock. He's going places. He could be the next Shyamalan. Oh dear! All right. Uh, if he plays his cards right. Um, no, we had, we had like two two cinephiles left listening to the show, and now <laughs> they're gone. Wait, 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 wait! Come back. It was a joke. Please don't, don't don't turn it off yet. Stick around. But no, it was it was funny because I'll say right off the bat, as I was watching it, I you know I couldn't help seeing the critical response to the 2020 Rebecca and seeing that it was a bit lackluster. And I remember seeing the teaser, the trailer for it, and thinking, well, this looks like it could actually be a pretty interesting story. That's kind of a a unique concept: the idea of of marrying into. A uh, a house that has a lot of history and a reputation that you feel like you're living in the shadow of. I thought that was such a cool concept, and so when I saw the movie, once it finished, I was like, I don't know. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. And then I saw the Hitchcock version, and I realized, ah, a lot of these critics who 
placed it a bit lower on the totem pole, they probably had seen the Hitchcock version first. <laughs> because I realize pretty much every single concept that I loved in the Netflix version that I saw was executed perhaps a bit more deftly in Alfred Hitchcock's version. But uh, we could we could get into that. But uh, yeah, and maybe right before we before we start into the plot, let me just set up a little bit of the history of what's happening with Alfred Hitchcock at this time. Mm. So Hitchcock, this is before many of his most famous films, you know, Psycho and Rear Window and The Birds and North by Northwest. Uh, this is Hitchcock first coming to Hollywood. So we have a Hitchcock who starts as an art director, mm -hmm. which we can talk about the, you know, the art direction in Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, I think, for sure. I think there's a lot to say there. So he starts as an art director, becomes a director in the in, of silent film in the British film industry, starts to become a success, starts to develop his reputation as a director of films dealing with murder and thrills and suspense, yeah. even at this early stage in his career. And then in 1940, he comes over to, to Hollywood and ends up directing Rebecca with David O. Selznick, who is just fresh off of releasing Gone with the Wind the year before, mm. which is obviously a mega film. He's bringing his same special effects team. So they've just been working on this this epic Technicolor film. Yeah, yeah. And now, well, yeah, essentially Technicolor. <laughs> and 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 here we are with uh, adapting Daphne du Maurier's uh, very popular novel mm. into into a movie. So it wasn't such an obscure book when at the time. No, that they it wasn't the an obscure book. And uh, Hitchcock was starting to make his name, like I say. David Oselznik has just come hot off of you know a huge success with Gone with the Wind, mm -hmm. and Selznick was you know is very much a hands-on producer. So in Gone with the Wind, he's doing a lot of he's calling a lot of the shots, and you know there's famously that movie goes through a couple directors and so on, mm -hmm. and it, it very much has the stamp of this is a Selznick picture, and when he comes in to work with Hitchcock. He's running up against much more of an auteur. And yeah, so yeah. actually what happens, and uh, we're maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but what happens is both uh, Selznick and Hitchcock sort of war over this film, and both mm. of them leave it feeling fairly dissatisfied. Interesting. Yeah, both of them sort of wanting to take it more in one direction versus the other. Hitchcock was you know was very particular and knew just what he wanted and didn't really want to shoot any more than that mm. this was which was a trick that wells would often use who was another sort of well even much more difficult to work with and famously right. would just try and go out and shoot only the takes that he wanted so that if the studio took away his final cut they didn't have a lot of options except what he had shot yeah. and hitchcock was trying to do that Clever. but selznick preferred to have a lot of extra shots to work with so that he during the editing process could uh, shape things interesting more so they're fighting about that and hitchcock wants to veer away from the novel a bit and selznick wants him to stay more faithful to the novel and so these are some of the the dynamics that are that are happening just to set the stage a little bit for what's going hmm. on with the 19 
with the 1940 version. Maybe two dissatisfied artists is the mark of a good movie. That was the same thing. It was a similar story with Groundhog Day. That caused kind of an infamous falling out with Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. That's true. And I, you know, podcast listeners may not know it, but that's one of my, that's probably my favorite (laughs) film of all time. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, what what did I say? The the best compromise is where no one leaves satisfied. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Except Uh, for the audience in this case. Yeah. And let's... I get to work on satisfying the audience in our case. So <laughs> both versions, and um, it's worth saying right out of the gate that both versions of the film are fairly similar in their plot beats. Uh, yeah. well, remarkably similar, in fact. Oh, yeah. Um, they, It's really in – I mean, they're using a lot of the same dialogue, um, sometimes the same shots, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they're really just differing in execution in, you know, I mean, in hundreds of small ways. But the broad plot strokes are the same. Yeah, yeah. So we open in Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo. And what we have is we're introduced to the character of Mrs. Lady Van Hopper. Yes, Lady or Mrs. Van Hopper, Uh who is your typical sort of... She's sort of the you know the PG Woodhouse aunt character, <laughs> the the stuffy, stuffy old maid um, who is used to getting her way and is very much a, a busybody and really yeah. sort of an insufferable person. <laughs> yeah, motor mouth kind of catty. Yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with Monty Python, they're referred to as Pepper Pots. There you go. Oh well, I never. <laughs> yes, and so she she's one of these, and she has. A paid companion. A lady companion. Yes, a lady companion who, you know, keeps keeps company with her and is sort of her gopher slash playmate slash whipping girl. Yeah. Kind of kind of a surrogate daughter in a way. Yeah, so in and and this this is our our main character. And I'm referring to her in this way because she is not given a name. See, I wondered about that because yeah. I kept thinking as I was taking my notes, I was like, I swear. But every time I'd look, it was just Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. She is the second Miss Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. And this is, you know, it is not just a, a, you know, a little Easter egg type thing. This is very essential to the character and the story that is being told yeah. that she does not get a first name. So swallowed is she, you know, in the shadow of Rebecca. Rebecca. But that's coming later. So we're introduced to this character, this woman. We'll just keep calling her the second Mrs. De Winter for now, which mm-hmm. is already a spoiler. But in the 2020 version, she's played by Lily James. Lily and James. in the original 1940 version, she is played by Joan Fontaine. Yes. So in both versions, they're here in Monte Carlo, you know, uh, taking, taking, in, taking in the sun, enjoying the season. Doing the yeah. the thing, you know, the living the life of the idle rich. Yeah. With uh, the second Mrs. De Winter being very much a uh, fish out of water. Yeah, yeah. She's very quaint. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of make it a point. Uh, I would say in both films, but I think uh, – let the comparisons begin. I think the Hitchcock film makes it a bit more clear, the fish out of water vibe that you get from her. I, I Not to say that the Netflix version struggles there at all, but – well, she, uh... I think what happens there, and this is something that I'm 
going to get into in a few places, but it's much more explicit in the exposition, I think, yeah. in the 2020 version. Mm-hmm. It's very much talked about. She says, you know, she has a line even where she talks about her inexperience. She's sort of this ingenue. She's this this innocent. She talks about how she's out of used place to- she is. She's being abused constantly by Lady Van Hopper as, you know, clearly someone who is way out of her league in mixing with any of these people um mm-hmm. you know in the in the 2020 version at, well i know in both versions they they actually there's a quip about her like embarrassing herself by trying to insert herself in a conversation with her betters yeah and yeah. how she you know there's very much this sort of class you know traditional british class distinction going on and she belongs on this other level and should not get above herself which yeah, exactly. is immediately puts us in sympathy for her and with her and is sort of laughable because if in both versions, the the character of the second Mrs. De Winter is certainly not a woman who would ever try to reach above herself. She yeah. is very much a shrinking violet. She is... She's very unassuming. Yes, she's very unassuming, very timid, very modest, not someone who is trying to climb the social ladder. This isn't a Becky Sharp. This is a woman who is just sort of in awe of her surroundings and trying to navigate uh, without getting too battered by the stronger forces around her. Yeah, yeah. That's actually an interesting distinction I like. Uh, again, this to me, this was made much more clear in the Hitchcock film. Given her unassuming, meek, kind of lowly stature – you never, you're never given the impression that she would, like you say, that she would try for anything more than that. And you don't really get that vibe either in the Netflix film, but we'll get into this more later on. But there, there are, there are moments of what I would say artificial drama injected into the Netflix film where they, they, people accuse her of things that until that point in the film, based on the writing and her acting, you would think, why would you ever accuse her of that? How could you? Which in the Hitchcock film, she's never really accused of anything. Yes, yeah, I think she type. she's a little bit by Lady Van Hopper, but Van Hopper is a woman that we are led, um, especially in the. I mean, she's quite a nasty lady in both versions. Yeah, yeah. But I think with the Hitchcock version, and this is something that plays throughout the Hitchcock version, I find, is that the Hitchcock version is not afraid to be wry. Yeah. To be a little bit witty, to throw some jokes, whereas the 2020 version, I think, is really straight down the line the entire film. It takes itself deadly serious, yes. I think. Yes. And that's not to say that uh, the 1940 version is a comedy by any means, but it, it does allow us a few moments to sort of wink and laugh at a couple of the particular side characters that mm-hmm. come in that aren't exactly comic relief, but are um, enough of... Sources of much-needed brevity, I yes. would say. Yeah. Not I, brevity. Levity. levity. <laughs> I always source confuse those brevity. two. A source of brevity. Every time they're on screen, we just whip through that scene. <laughs> time uh, flies when you're having fun. Okay. So so here they are in... Monte Carlo. In Monte Carlo. And pretty quickly, we're, we're introduced to Mr. De Winter. Max De Winter. Maxim Max. De Winter. He has Maxim quite a few names. Maxim is the one that seems to be... Most used. It's the one that sticks. Yeah. yeah. De Winter. So he is of the lofty De Winter family, which is a well-known aristocratic family mm-hmm. with 
the with a a famous home called Mandalay. Mandalay, not not Manderley. See, this is. I thought that was just an English person thing because it's spelled Manderley, but it's not. Well, you know, people have local places, local cultures have ways of pronouncing <laughs> local names. They're funny ways that they, you know. I feel like calling calling Manderley Manderley is feels like I'm calling Barcelona Barce- Barcelona, you know. Well, think about as our international listeners will be very familiar with the little town of Hurricane versus Hurricane. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, moving right along. Yeah, yeah. So Max is also in Monte Carlo again doing the thing of the idle rich. It's the place to be. Mm-hmm. It's the season of Monte Carlo. And Lady Van Hopper, um, who is very much a social climber, has mm-hmm. a a passing acquaintance with is a passing acquaintance with Mr. De Winter, and so immediately tries to very forcefully insert herself into um, his his vacation. Yeah, and in so doing, inadvertently introduces Max to as we've already. Spoiled, the second Mrs. De Winter. The future second Mrs. De Winter. Yes. So <laughs> so the character uh, played by Lillian Joan, yeah, becomes infatuated with Max De Winter, played by, in the 1940 Hitchcock version, the great Lord Laurence Olivier, and in the 2020 version, uh, the only American actor in the film, well, Army yeah. Hammer. Army Hammer. Which um, is interesting. Yeah, which is which is an interesting choice. Yes, um, so these are the these are the two characters, are the two actors playing Max, and I, I think right away we're we're seeing a character who is, well, brusque to varying degrees. Yeah, in either version, certainly a reticent, you know, typical of the British aristocracy, sort of reserved, restrained character. Yeah, very who proper. certainly. And obviously does not want the company of Lady De Winter, but... Or not uh, Lady De Winter. Sorry, excuse me. Yes. Lady Von Snapple. Van Hopper. Yes. Beg pardon. (laughs) Lady Van Hopper. But uh, takes a peculiar and immediate shine to... The future uh, to second. Her, yeah, to, <laughs> the future second Mrs. De Winter. Um, Yeah. To yeah, uh, you know, some critics referred to her as I, which is even more baffling to try and do in this yeah. podcast. Oof. That's begging for so. a who's on first situation. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, who I you? Yeah, oh, but I. um, yeah. Th- there's this odd uh, chemistry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a very sort of stilted and awkward chemistry that starts between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is essentially what we're going to call the first the first section of this movie. The Monte Carlo section. The Monte Carlo. And this is, you know, the, the wooing of the second Mrs. The, the wooing the, of the future the, second, the future second, Mrs. second Mrs. Mrs. De Winter. That should be the title of the podcast, <laughs> The Wooing of the Future Second Mrs. De Winter. I, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, this actually might be, a, I mean, may or may not be a good time to draw the first few solid comparisons. I would like to talk a bit about our, our two leads in each film. Yes. Um, I am not particularly familiar actually this is going to probably tick off our cinephile listeners but i think i've maybe seen one other laurence olivier film and the man is a living legend but i've 
Somehow I have. He's not a living legend. Oh, well, he's a uh, he's a dead legend. <laughs> he's. <laughs> but the legend lives on. So oh, gosh, not not entirely inaccurate. <laughs> I could have used any word before legend. Uh, he 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 has left his mark on the world. Yeah, certainly at the time praised as perhaps the greatest actor of all time. Certainly touted as Britain's. Greatest actor, whether or not uh, people accept that. A very hardworking actor, appeared in many, many, many films, very prolific, mm. won many accolades, played many different parts. Uh, in this film, he's quite reserved and restrained, but in other films, you know, he he was he could be campy or vivacious. He, yeah, he, yeah. Had, a, he had a wide range, but very celebrated actor. You know, and it's it's interesting because I mean I'll say right off the bat, his performance as Maxim de Winter, I found absolutely riveting. I thought he was incredibly convincing. He he portrayed maybe not necessarily a wide range of emotions because Maxim de Winter is a troubled man uh, who was troubled by a, a very set number of issues in his life. But there is so much nuance in how he depicts those emotions that just by the way, the, the wavering of his voice, the way he kind of glances wistfully into the distance, there's a, when I watched the first Rebecca, the, by which I mean the second Rebecca, by which I mean probably the fifth or sixth Rebecca in terms of chronological adaptations. Good heavens. Let's call it the 2020 version. Ah, yes. Yes. The 2020 Rebecca. <laughs> Clever. I like it. Uh, as I was watching the 2020 Rebecca, I, I'll, I'll be straight up. I'm, I'm a big fan of Army Hammer, and I'm frustrated that he has not yet been – he has not yet landed a legitimate breakout role, I would say. He was in The Lone Ranger, which tanked. I think his big film among cinephiles is Call Me By Your Name. Oh, of course. Hey! See, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, but I, I haven't I, either. But, I know of it. Um, yeah, I know it's – uh, you know, very well received. That's true. Yeah, he. Yeah, he was in "Call Me by Your Name," which, which, from what I've heard, is a fantastic movie. He's. Uh, he was in Lone Ranger, which was kind of his. That was that was his first chance, I think, at becoming kind of a blockbuster guy, and yeah. that didn't do very well at all. He he's very charismatic. Oh, he's a uh, the man from UNCLE, the man from Uncle. He's uh, a yeah. he plays well, a Russian, and of and course, that one, and apparently, um, very good in. The, in the Social Network, playing the yes. twins, and that was so, arguably his breakout film. That yeah. was. That I was, mean, he he's done a lot of interesting work. Yeah, he's certainly. You know, he hasn't become. I, I don't. He, I wouldn't say he's. I mean, he, he's a bit of a heartthrob. I don't think he's become as big as you know any of the let's call them the Marvel crew. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's doing some interesting work. I think. Yeah, he hasn't he hasn't joined the Chris's yet. <laughs> well, so. As you're talking about his approach to this character, yeah, 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 yeah. I just want to jump in with a clip that that I wanted to share real quick. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what we have here is an interview that I found on Netflix Film, the one of um, the Netflix original Twitter account, official Twitter account. Yeah, and so this is a promotional interview with Army Hammer, and he's talking about the film and his approach to the role. And he's going to talk a little, uh, you know, uh, so he's going to mention some things that are very apt to what we're saying about mm -hmm. this level of restraint. 
developing the physicality and the way Maxim speaks, I mean, obviously he speaks differently than I do. He uses a, in, in a sort of like antiquated English accent. If the lady has to pay for company, that says something about the lady, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but the physicality of a character like that, I'm very fidgety. I move, I use my hands when I talk, I, I, I touch things, I do all that. But these people didn't. There was a, there was a, a trained stillness within them. So filtering all of my sort of like more erratic over the top behavior through that was really challenging, but also it felt really good in terms of like getting the character in my body. If I did a take where I could talk to someone and not move at all, I felt really good about it because I feel like that's kind of how these guys operate. There was a lot exciting about this. I mean, there was also a lot that was intimidating about this. I was using a British accent for the first time on film. That was intimidating, especially being the only American on set. Is this some kind of joke? But the exciting things outweighed that. I was excited to work with Ben Wheatley and Lily James, uh, two people in this business that I respect so much. I was excited to work with such a great piece of source material like Daphne du Maurier's book, Rebecca, which at one point was voted the greatest book of the century. I was nervous and I felt daunted. Yeah, of course I'm scared, but am I gonna let it stop me? Interesting. So, yeah, a couple interesting reveals there. One thing, and this maybe is kind of an aside, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it seems like there's a very intentional um, avoiding any reference to the Hitchcock film. Yeah, I was he, waiting he says, for him. He doesn't say anything about the, you know, he's talking about all the things he's intimidated about, but he doesn't mention the intimidation of taking on a role that was played by the great Lawrence Olivier. Olivier. Yeah. And, he, and when he talks about the source material, he doesn't say, you know, a remake of the Hitchcock film. He says, you know, another, ad, uh, he says an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's, you know, none of that comes up. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's just, you know, that's the way he happened to talk about it in the interview. I don't know if that's him trying to put it out of his mind so that he can give the best performance that he can. Or if that's, you know, a restraint by the PR people saying, you know, or the, you know, the publicity team saying this is the way we want to run it. We don't want to invite comparisons. I don't know. But in any case, yeah, yeah, certainly one of the things that if I were an actor tackling that role, I would be very cognizant of the fact that I am playing a role in an Oscar-winning film directed by that was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and that my role was played by Laurence Olivier. Yeah, so, I mean that's a daunting task. Yeah, that's a that's a big burden. And I think it's interesting as we're talking about the all the you know the restrained emotions and everything to hear him talk about in the clip how you know he he felt if he could if he didn't move during a take that he'd you know that he'd nailed it essentially, mm-hmm. um, and how that you know felt very foreign to his. We'll call it American body language and sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's cool to hear him talk about his process and where he was coming at it from. It's weird because I love Army Hammer and I thought at the time that I was watching it, I thought that both he and Lily James did a terrific job as their respective characters. But watching the Hitchcock film just a night or two later – I realized I still wouldn't say either of them did a poor job with with what they did. I think that they they both were they're both terrific actors in everything I've seen them in, and they both did a great job. I think I guess I, I guess I would just disagree with a lot of the choices that they made, probably with the help of the director, because there's in the Hitchcock film there is a very very clear arc and sense to eat to to both characters. And in the Netflix film, I thought that they were a little bit 
all over the place. They're, I mean, they're kind of consistent, but and we'll get into this a bit more as we get into the Mandalay section. But uh, in the beginning, for instance, in the beginning of the film, when we when we meet both characters, both of them are fairly pleasant and you know conversational the first time they meet. Both of them at a at a table eating and talking, yeah. but under pretty different circumstances. But very very shortly after that. I'm trying to think of moments in the Netflix film when Army Hammer's version of Maxim de Winter shows lovable traits, I guess. His character, through, I would say, the overwhelming majority of the film, is a pretty bitter, unhappy, grouchy, uh, easily upset. And that's kind of written into the character. They talk about Maxim's temper. They talk about his his mood and things like that. But I was very, very impressed by Laurence Olivier's depiction of the same character because, uh, and again, I, I don't think it's purely decisions made by the actor. I think a lot of it is just decisions made by the the team, you know. Um, when she when she sees him in, in the Hitchcock film, the future second Mrs. De Winter sees Maxim on the edge of a cliff, kind of looking out over it with this kind of hesitant physicality as if he is almost preparing to jump and she tells him don't and it kind of starts this sort of awkward conversation that grows into something more dynamic and fun and there really isn't anything that dynamic or pivotal in the interactions between Maxim and the future the future second Mrs. De Winter in the Netflix film because I guess the biggest thing is his character the, the character in both films, I would say Maxim comes across as almost bipolar, but <laughs> I would say he comes off as more manic depressive in the Netflix film. There are, there are moments where he shows his dark side, and I'm left wondering why are you know you forget what drew her there in the first place because I think both Army and probably Ben Wheatley and whoever else was in charge of sculpting this character, this this take on the character. I think they forgot to inject him with humanity, I guess. And there is a wistfulness and a sadness to Laurence Olivier's take on it. Yeah, I agree, especially with what you said at the end. With Olivier, I sense very much layers of of regret, which which lead very well into the the spell and the reveals that the movie has later on. Yeah. Whereas with uh, with the way that that Hammer's version is is portrayed, I don't, he his outbursts at various times come across somehow more like he feels a bit more like a jerk at times. Yes, yes, he, he's he's almost you almost get the a feeling of him being abusive. Exactly. Whereas, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a bit of a, I mean, there is a what could easily be cons- be considered a problematic dynamic between <laughs> Maxim and Maxim and the future second the future Mrs. Second Mrs. Winter. Mrs. De Winter. <laughs> the the way they interact, you know, it is a I mean it is in I mean it's a there's this jump across class, which, you know, in in these days we don't you know, hardly anyone worries about that sort of thing. But there mm-hmm. is even to our sensibilities, this idea that, you know, there's a character coming from a place with a lot of wealth and power and prestige 
to a character who is essentially just a a little you know nobody is yeah, the way yeah. that that both films show and there is this dynamic of even though he's not in either version a harsh man he is a man who is very much a pride in his family uh a sense of station mm-hmm. and combined with the you know with the social culture of the time has views that could be easily considered sexist and i think there's a little bit i felt a little bit of in the hitchcock version i could feel a sense of dated cultural attitudes yeah. like there was a little bit of the you know i am not only the lord of this house because it's a grand house, but I'm the lord of the house because I am the man. Yeah. And you yeah. are, you know, and the you, the woman, are subservient. But it's very much with the – because of the wistfulness of Olivier's portrayal, it feels like just slight trappings of the time. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's, that's – to me, that's a testament to both Olivier's excellent performance – and to some of the hindrances of Army Hammer's version of it. Because, uh, yeah, the, it's definitely I, – I think the Netflix film avoids some of those trappings a bit more. It, 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 it's not necessarily a very progressive film. It's not really trying to break down a lot of barriers or anything. But it does pay less homage to the cultural norms of the time. But it, that says something, I think, about Olivier's character. Is that even given those norms, his character comes off as – to me, lovable. I like even even at his low points in the film, which again we'll get to in a bit. There's still this sense of like you can tell that he's struggling, and you by proxy through through Mrs. De Winter at those moments, uh, you want to find out what's troubling him and make it feel better. And that's there's there's a lot of moments where, and this happens a lot in the Monte Carlo sequence as well. Where it just it seems like he wants to be happy, but his mind is elsewhere, and the elsewhere that his mind is is a sad place, and because of that, it's like he's constantly having to get pulled back into the present moment and to realize that there is a reason to be happy in this moment. Whereas Army Hammer's version, it's more like he's irritable, and I would say not even halfway through the film, it just feels like. Lily James's character, the Mrs. De Winter, it, it seems like she just annoys him. You get this this vibe, and you, I don't get that vibe at all in the Hitchcock film. He yeah, he never that's one thing that through not necessarily any marked faults in the performance, but uh, yeah, it's just it, the decisions. The, yeah, the sum total of many sundry decisions. I feel that same thing that by. Uh, slightly into the film, I'm wondering about the chemistry of this this marriage. Like, wh- mm. how what is? Because what's interesting is this: this is a marriage that's going to be tested. Yeah. Throughout the film, you know, we have this wooing period at the beginning, and then immediately they go into this state of testing as it tests many other things. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like even though the Monte Carlo sequence feels briefer, I don't know by minutes whether it is. Mm-hmm. I think it must be, but it feels very much briefer in the Hitchcock version. But it gives us because of the way that the we're able to create such a sympathy with Joan Fontaine's and Laurence Olivier's performance of these two characters. 
I feel that there is something there that they keep trying that there's it feels like there's a mutual effort to to be in love with each other to hmm. to carve out of this horrible situation that they've been put into a little space where they can find some solace in each other. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in the the other version I don't in the 2020 version I don't get a sense of that. It feels very quickly like I'm sort of I still feel a sympathy toward the Lily James character, mm-hmm. but yeah. I feel that she's almost caught up in this relationship that like she probably doesn't even want to be in anymore. Exactly. Yeah, you don't that that emotional hook, that attraction, that love that you feel goes away so quickly in the 2020 film. I mean, even as soon as, speaking of the Monte Carlo sequences, the first, I think it's the very first drive that she goes on with Maxim. He drives her, he's driving, he drives her to the the cliff where he first, I believe, proposed to Rebecca years ago. Yeah, or at least that they were on their honeymoon. Yeah, they were on their honeymoon or some such, yeah. And they get there and... She's in the 2020 film. She's looking out over it, and she's just like, "Oh, it's so pretty," you know. And and he's and he says, "Yes, I was here once." And she said, "Oh, why?" And he said, "For my honeymoon." And then he just kind of glares off into the sunset and just briskly walks away and leaves her there, like immediately just snaps. And suddenly it's like, yeah. "Oh, right, now I'm angry again." And he yeah. just kind of broods away. And it's <sighs> within. I mean, even before. Before he even proposes to her in Monte Carlo, there are moments in the 2020 film, like when they pull up in their car after their little date, their little day trip, and she sees in the glove box a book of poems, I think. Yeah, love poems. Love poems from Rebecca. And she, she's just looking at it, and she looks up and sees him, and he's glaring at her like <laughs> like she's stealing his money. He's just like, put that back. like, And it's just like, wow. They, they, they don't even – I think that, you know – <laughs> The, the the way that the 2020 film was told, it was like they had read the entire story and couldn't figure out how to tell it from the beginning. And they were so swept up in the part about him being angsty and preoccupied with thoughts of Rebecca that they just they just intersperse it throughout the entire film. There's no ebb and flow. There's no rising tension. Yeah. It's just a constant layer of him. And this is where – here's a hot take for you. Ooh. This is where I think much like – the character of the future second Mrs. De Winter mm. <laughs> is under the, you know, the looming shadow of Rebecca. This is where I feel the 2020 version being under the shadow of Rebecca, the film, the yeah. Hitchcock film. Yeah. Because yeah. there's certainly in a, in a movie that chooses to hit a lot of the same plot points, you know, you have to, there's an urge certainly to do to make different choices yeah yeah to take something and you know you're not this isn't a you know this isn't gus van sant's remake of psycho where he's trying to do a (laughs) shot for shot you know where that's the experiment right this is a film that is trying to separate itself and be discreet Mm -hmm. uh, or distinct so i think what happens is because of that as you're trying to figure out slightly different iterations of all of these things Maybe sometimes there's these false steps. Occasionally, I think they do something that I find, if not better, at least quite interesting. Mm -hmm. But one example of this that I want to talk about quickly, maybe as we're summing up this Monte Carlo section, is the proposal. Because it culminates culminates in, you know, um, so the character, (laughs) the future second Mrs. DeWinter, um, (laughs) is... 
kind of sneaking off from her duties, ostensibly going to tennis lessons, in reality, going on little day trips and rendezvous with with Maxim. Yeah. And what happens is, uh, you know, this, this rapport is struck and this romance and she's she can hardly believe it. Insomuch that when it's suggested that he go away with her, she wonders if he means, uh, in both versions, she says, what, uh, to be your secretary? Mm-hmm. And he says, no, you little fool, I'm asking you to marry me. Yeah. Or something quite like that. And I just want to talk about the quickly about the difference between those, those two uh, proposals. Because so one can see the temptation, if we want to call it that. Mm. Uh, to make things more explicitly cinematic, to expand and add a sensuality. Because unlike Hitchcock, who was thrilling at the chance with his art director mind to be on the big Hollywood sets, this is a film that loves being on location. Ah, um, you know, because yeah. here we are, you know, they're not doing a studio thing. They're actually, I don't know if they're in Monte Carlo, but they're certainly on the coast, you know, uh, yeah. filming in these big outdoor locations and taking advantage of that. And... Um, pulling through, you know, this isn't like a the hot, sexy take on Rebecca, but they do take some moments, especially in this Monte Carlo, to add a little bit of skin, to add a little bit more sensuality yeah. than we get in the 1940 version. So I think the proposal scene is an excellent example of these two approaches. In both versions, Max is shaving and there's a certain nonchalance to this romantic event. You know, she's come in and sort of startled him and said that she has to leave suddenly and he's now got to... You know, he's now going to propose. And the 20, ver- 20 version, even though he's, you know, shaving and in his undershirt and it's all kind of quick and um, not like the traditional, you know, on one knee proposal, mm-hmm. there's a sort of an irony to it. And we still see him come out and fold her in his arms and say, you know, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. And yeah, yeah. in the 1940 version, he says that off screen. He yells it through a door. Yeah. You know, Olivier just says as he's shaving in the other room, no, I'm asking you to marry me. You know, we, there's no there's no embrace. There's no, you know, sweeping moment of sensuality or anything. There's just this, you know, it's which, which, not even a, a an awkward sort of, uh, you know, cutesy thing. It's just this flippant kind of, you know. Which I think almost lends itself to the to the intended tone of that sequence. Right. And what it does as well is it gives us a chance, instead of focusing on the two of them and how beautiful they might look together and being pulled into the idea of, because I, feel, I do feel that the 2020 version is a bit more of a romance. Yeah. Instead of being pulled into the romance and the, and the, the beauty and the, uh, you know, of that moment, what we're doing is we're just watching her in the 1940 version. And we're seeing Joan Fontaine's wonderful face, which I think, the I mean, there are moments, especially in this Monte Carlo sequence, where just seeing her face tells, tells us so much yeah. that they they go through with exposition with Lily James, that, you know, they have her explain that she's bookish, that she's inexperienced, that she's virginal, that she's all these other things are just sort of said through the way that she talks and the way that other characters interact with her. And we certainly get that in the Hitchcock version. But we also get it just in Joan's face. Yeah. And yeah. so the way that, that Hitchcock shoots this scene gives us that. The proposal happening from off screen and her sort of amazement and being caught up and, and she's torn and she and she loves him and, and she can't believe this and and she's shocked. And when we get to just watch those emotions kind of unfold and then he and then he comes out. And you know, the, so there's still that sense of 
you know, the difference in their stations and all of the things that are happening that we get in both versions. But it's much less, um, I don't know, it's much less explicit, I guess, in the yeah. Hitchcock version. And I can definitely see why they would choose to try and pull that out and make it bigger and more sensual and more lush. Because if you are making choices, that's that seems like a logical one. Yeah. You know, if you're leaning in on the romantic aspects, if you've got this budget and it's in color and it's got all these things that the 1940 version doesn't have, you are going to want to to spin it a little bit of these ways. But I don't know that it serves as well the driving themes of the story as, you know, at its core. Yeah, yeah. They were able to give it kind of more of an aesthetic sensuality, but it it, it really didn't help the story. Because again, it's uh, the sensuality of the scenes with them. It, it's almost at odds with... Again, with the the writing and acting decisions made for the characters, where you get these passionate moments that are completely incongruous with with the tone that it seems is universal in the novel and in most of the adaptations, because Hitchcock's film has it in spades. Again, I don't know. It's so interesting because you feel I, I was much more sold on the intimate connection between Maxim de Winter and the future second. Hold on. The future second Mrs. DeWinter. Yeah, despite not having these moments, because the Monte Carlo yeah. sequence, we, you know, we get to see them, you know, we get to see their, the sexual relationship, I guess, not in a, not in a crass, well, there's a moment where it's quite crass. And then yeah. I think we get to see that juxtaposition, you know, that he's, he's looking out in the boat and he sees this couple, you know, in the, in the act of lovemaking and it's sort of, uh, you know, it is quite sort of crass and they turn away and yeah. it, and I think it sort of is put there as a juxt as a juxtaposition for the tenderness that they have for each other, and we see a little bit of that unfold. And you know, as they they have a scene kissing on the beach, and mm -hmm. they have all these. And we don't really get any of this in the nineteen forty version. Yeah, but there's this emotional intimacy of these characters that are both fragile, yeah, in their yeah. own ways even though one is in a much higher position and has a lot more to sort of prop himself against, he's also hampered by carrying much darker things. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, there's just this emotional... Emotionally, they're more simpatico, even if they can't quite relate to each other perfectly because of these things that are in the way. And that's sort of the tragedy of the of the first half of the original or the at least the Hitchcock I mean the Hitchcock version yeah right right yeah which I guess that that leads us into uh yeah. their little trip to Mandalay so he 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 does he proposes to her as Bo has said uh she she finds out that her her companion Lady Van Pat Patton Lady mm -hmm. Van Hopper <laughs> <laughs> She's such a memorable, grouchy lady. How could I possibly keep forgetting her name? Lady Van Hopper. Uh, she finds out that she's going to be leaving. So long story short, she and Maxim end up getting married very quickly, very discreetly. And they head on over to Mandalay, his his home, which uh, right off the bat, I will say, this was not very apparent to me in the Netflix film, but uh, in the Hitchcock original it seemed like he was hesitant. I mean, not seemed. It was very clear that he was hesitant to ever even go back. Which, again, that plays into that 
gosh, that character moment that is such a big deal in the Hitchcock film, and Netflix only suffers for not having this sequence of him looking to be contemplating suicide. Because it, you know, you get the impression that he wasn't planning on going back to Mandalay because he wasn't planning on going back anywhere. You know, he was planning on dying in Monte Carlo, most likely. Uh, so you get this this kind of reluctance where I think it's really important because in the 2020 Netflix film, Maxim's relationship to Mandalay doesn't seem to be particularly emotional. Uh, again, he just seems like he's constantly upset about everything all the time. But it it, it it seems like going back to Mandalay for him is just like, all right, well, we're back. Here we are. Here we are. Here's my old place. But it's an, an almost painful experience for Laurence Olivier's Maxim when they go back. And th- there's, mul- there's multiple moments in the film, one of which is actually in a clip I'll be sharing later, where he expresses regret at coming back. And I think that they, they do a really good job in the Hitchcock film of – that happy-go-lucky romantic vibe dissipating as they enter Mandalay actually has a narrative and character-driven kind of energy behind it where you can understand why that romantic vibe would dissipate a bit as they start to get there because he's got nothing but bad memories of this place. He does, he never wanted to see it again. And I think that sets the tone, which is very yeah. very strongly iterated in the Hitchcock version of something mythic, something yeah, supernatural, something haunting in a in a subtle way. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, it, yeah, at least subtle in the beginning about this place, and not only the shadow of Rebecca, which has started to come up now. It started to be there's we've, we're starting to have mentions in both films more and more of the first Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca, and how she was so chic and so lovely and how heartbroken Max was at her death and all of these, I, I guess we haven't even mentioned that there was an untimely death of. <laughs> <laughs> Have we, did we forget I, to I, mention? I guess we, yeah. We, yeah. We haven't mentioned that. The former I mean, first Mrs. De Winter. Yeah. The, the former, the former and first Mrs. <laughs> De Winter, um, who we can call Rebecca, thankfully. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. So Rebecca, Met with an un, untimely death. Um, I think it's, I can't remember if it's stated as a year or two years into their marriage. Certainly not long. Yeah. A couple of years into their marriage and and, and she died. And uh, in one film, we know fairly early on that she died by drowning. In the other, it takes us a while for that reveal to happen. But we know that her death was untimely and tragic. And there's very much a sense that Max is in deep grief. Mm-hmm. That's in both films. That's posited as the reason for much of his behavior is that he is, um, you know, bereaved and under the weight of a heavy loss. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just quickly say before we get into the characters, including it, well, the very important characters that we're going to meet. Yeah. Very important and very interesting. Some of the more interesting characters I think we've even talked about in this entire podcast. Um, <laughs> That are coming up in this home in Mandalay. Mm-hmm. I want to talk just a, for a moment about Mandalay itself. Yes, yes. The the home itself, the estate. Uh, in the yeah, in the 2020 version, we do get to sort of sweep around this big physical location. I don't know whether they've done anything with any CG stuff, but uh, it's not apparent if they have. Yeah, yeah. and we just 
get to see this this big beautiful estate, you know, with its lush gardens, with its uh, coastal views, and of course in the 1940 version, we're working with the special effects team that just came from the epic Gone with the Wind, which is in color, but this is a black and white film. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of dark and misty, moody grays and blacks and everything. And I find a very sort of, as I look back on the movie, you know, as I remember the movie, in when I think back in the 2020 version, I remember the Monte Carlo stuff stands out a lot. I can remember a lot of scenes from there, a lot yeah. of moments, a lot of images come to mind. Whereas that's just a blip in my mind when I think back on the 1940 version. Mm-hmm. But when I think of Mandalay, and I have vague impressions of a sort of castle, if I think about the 2020 version. If yeah. I think about the 1940 version, I'm getting a lot of rot images, a very heavy sort of corridors and misty. You know, it's it's got a presence. It does. Um, and I think this... We can at least in part put on Hitchcock and his art director background. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking he's certainly calling a lot of the shots here, pushing a lot of this out to give this the effect of this place and its haunting quality. And I don't know if you knew this, but maybe it was obvious to you, but it's miniatures and matte paintings. Is it? All of it. Did you know this? The exterior? The exterior is all miniatures and matte paintings. Could have fooled me. I was. This was not. This was not obvious to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple moments I think that are you know some effects that seem quite obvious now. You know, some of the rear projection while they're driving or yeah, something like that. Yeah, there's a few which, projections. Um, but you know, the idea was very much to keep these sort of special effects shots. You know, they were thought of as you know, it's to disguise that they're they're trying to create effects that you don't recognize as effects. Right. Right. And I think they do a, a fantastic job. With this, because I also watching it didn't, it never crossed my mind that this was, you know, every once in a while they open a window and I thought maybe the backdrop that I'm seeing is kind of, you know, is on studio or something. Uh, Well, I mean, I I kind of knew that it was on studio, but I don't ever get the sense that these, you know, that this isn't like big, massive sets and some exterior castle that they're shooting somewhere, you know, to at least for these, for these outer shots. But no, it's, it's a mixture of, you know, it's forced perspective and, uh, miniatures, one of them, I think, was like 50 feet or mm. so. And then, yeah, with uh, matte painting backgrounds. And they do a great job of creating this sort of, you know, something that maybe the 2020 version missed out on by going with reality is that they didn't get to subtly play with the subjective means of creating this haunting atmosphere. And it yeah, isn't any yeah. sort of Tim Burton, you know, ghostly place with, you know, crooked doors, expressionist, and- yeah, spirals and things like that. You know, it looks, you could look at it and say that it's just another British stately home, mm-hmm. but it does have that subtle haunting quality to it, it that does. I think really permeates and helps to sell this as it starts, we start to be imbued with a sense of, in a way, a horror film or a ghost story. Yeah, as we're starting yeah. to come more and more up against the spirit of Rebecca and the way that she is tied in as this glamorous person to the glamour of this home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I actually really appreciated that about the Hitchcock film because it's interesting because I would say this was the first realistic ghost, ghost story I've ever seen on film. As far as, this, it, it, this was the first time I think I've ever seen a, a movie that I would call a a ghost story with, with, I guess spoilers ahead. Um, 
there's no literal supernatural magic ghost in this film. No. But it's in, in every sense of the word, I would call it a ghost story. Uh, and again, like, yeah, I, I wish I knew enough about set design and art direction to say what exactly executes it so well in Hitchcock's film. Because, it, like, again, it's very face value in the 2020 film. It's basically just kind of a spooky old house. And I wouldn't even say spooky. It's just big. No, it's it's it's, it's desaturated. It's gloomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gloomy. It's gloomy. But uh, that's about the extent of it. But there's constant emotions being drawn out of you in the Hitchcock film, and uh, it's it's actually kind of fun. But I'd say both movies elicited this from me, since we get to experience the story through Mrs. De Winter's eyes, the now present Mrs. De Winter. She, you know, as we've said a few times, she is a she is a, of the Commonwealth. She is a normal, everyday, non-elite person. So she's being introduced to this lifestyle as a newcomer, and so we kind of get to experience it through her through her eyes as well. And this movie was the first time that I ever actually considered the whole concept of of naming a house. Uh, <laughs> the the fact that it's called Mandalay, I'm just yeah. like, why, like. And I was thinking about, you know, there's another, there's a show that Netflix released a little earlier in October called, it was, uh, they released a sequel to The Haunting of Hill House, which, you know, in itself, but it was The Haunting of Bly Manor, which was based on the novel, The Turn of the, the, Turn of the Screw, mm. which Bly Manor, it's, it's just a house. It's yeah. a big house, but. Even smaller English homes, a lot of them have names. Yeah. That's, is that, is that a, is that a, an English custom? Is that something? Yeah, I that, don't know. I can't speak to how European it might be, mm. but certainly like some of the, like I've in some of my travels in the UK, I've stayed in a few court Henry, Glenbar Odell. Mm. I've stayed in a few homes that, um, it's that almost, names. it's so fascinating to me. Cause I've, I've seen it in tons of literature and film and, and shows and whatnot, but it was my first time really thinking about it. This, this house is essentially a small indoor town. You know, they've got a population of, of of workers and staff. Mr. and Mrs. De Winter are essentially the, you know, the president and vice president of the house. They're, it's, they even talk about her responsibilities, her responsibilities of speaking with the gardener, making sure he knows what he's supposed to do, writing her letters. She's yeah. sat at the desk. Have you written your letters? Letters? Oh, gosh, I'm supposed to write letters? It's it feels very much like she's being she's being born into a position of leadership. And in both films, yeah, there's a question of I don't there's this the there's these remarks of I don't know if you can handle this, sweetie. Yeah. Sort of like you're going in to take on this great estate. Essentially, like you're saying. I mean, and and that's also to say, I mean, feudally, mm. uh, as in not with a T, but feudal, as in the feudal times. Ah. Um these these were <laughs> You know, these estates were little towns. I mean, there were people living off this land. These, yeah, you know, yeah. these were the that was the aristocracy's sort of job, if you will. And we, you know, we don't have to get into the politics of that. Mm -hmm. But there, there was essentially that they are sort of the lords of this area, overseeing these people and the and these lands and living off the lands and providing for and protecting and managing this little area that they live in and they were the most respected citizens they were often you know the 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 magistrates and the and sort of the honor, you know they 
essentially the lords of this little area. Yeah. So not yeah. only the household, which which would you know include many servants, still in in this time, which is the 30s, I believe, mm-hmm. they're they are still you know there's still quite a few servants, and it's not even probably what it would have been a few decades before that. The, yeah. the number of servants and people that would have been you know this this is they mention how the home is open to the public in the 1940 version they mentioned the home is open to the public uh i can't remember twice weekly or something yeah and yeah. and that's the thing that that happened is these homes were starting to lose their prominence and their money is that they started to have to use them kind of as museums and they became these big things that you had to upkeep and they sort of became almost these burdens to the people that lived with them is they had to try and raise them up and try and keep up the family name and its importance in a in a world where that was becoming swiftly less and less important yeah. to more and more people. It's interesting. You know, uh, along a similar line, getting into some of the story beats from the Mandalay, the Mandalay sequence, there's a moment where Mrs. De Winter accidentally breaks a, a China Cupid. Yeah. And she sort of, you know, she kind of scoops up the pieces and sort of stashes them and and forgets about it. And then this happens in both films. Uh, uh, just shortly thereafter, it's an it's an ordeal because I can't remember if it was Frith or Mrs. Danvers or if it varied in each film, but they it's acknowledged that it is missing and they start threatening the help and accusing. Yeah. Well, what happens is Frith comes and in both versions he sort of brings them in and says that one of the servants, Alfred. He's some sort of a footman has mm-hmm. been, yeah, has been accused of pilfering it because it's very valuable and mm-hmm. now it's gone. And Danvers, who we haven't talked, we haven't mentioned, we haven't said yeah. who these people are yet, but we, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll so get to the characters. Just very briefly to say that an innocent footman is being accused by the servants in authority mm-hmm. of perhaps pilfering this this valuable ornament that was broken. Yeah, and in both cases, she has to. Step forward and confess. Yeah, she, she has to step forward and confess to having broken it and hidden it and not wanting to talk about it because she's so intimidated by the grandeur of this house and the staff and all of that. She just doesn't want to deal with any of it. Yeah. Better yeah. to just brush it away and kind of pretend it never happened. Exactly. And there's a line that Maxim says in the Hitchcock version uh, when they say that it's the China Cupid that's that's gone missing. He says, oh, dear, that's one of our treasures, isn't it? And – it's so interesting to me that he would call it that because it's almost like it almost makes the house feel like a temple from Indiana yeah. Jones. You know, this is one of the relics in the house that is of value to the home. So they, it's not, you know, it's not enough to kind of sweep it away or something or even just glue it themselves. They you know, send it to a place to see if it can be fixed because it's it's part of the identity of this home. Yeah. It, and it's part of, yeah, almost this dynasty in a way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these are likely items that are insured and, you know, these are important sort of. They're sort of seen as certainly important to the family history and perhaps to the history of the country. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, Does this make for a good segue into some characters? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about this scene, mm. actually. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's go ahead and talk about this this scene for a moment, and maybe we can use this to as also as a way of introducing one of the most important characters of this film, which. It's an interesting testament to the way this film works that we can have a character like Mrs. Danvers Mm -hmm. come in relatively late into the film and play such an important part in a film which already has so many important characters. Yeah. We've already got this haunting Rebecca, 
you know, that's that's there with her presence looming over everything and changing everything. We've got Mrs. Van Hopper, who was a very strong presence and is now gone from the film. And then we've got our two leads. And now we're being introduced to yet another big character. And this is Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, and Mrs. Danvers is the sort of the epitome of like the icy British poise. She's the evil queen from Snow White. Yeah. Pre-witch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she's, yeah, and she is the... The, oh, the, the, the head of the help. Uh, yeah, the it, well, not the butler, but the, the, the female equivalent. And I can't think of the housekeeper, but I can't think of what the... And in any case, a lead servant. And she's also, she was the, the chief attendant to Rebecca in the earlier times of the house. And this is a woman who we know very early on has a great respect, more so certainly than Max de Winter has mm-hmm. for this home, for this estate, for this name, certainly for Rebecca... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's immediately a sense of this is a character with whom you need to have either some some level of position of uh position and will to withstand. Yeah. Otherwise she is going to just roll right over the top of you. And in a way that, you know, it's that classic British politeness where the insults are all very passive aggressive mm-hmm. but very pointed. Yeah, and there's yeah. not going to be a lot of head-on confrontation, but there's going to be a lot of condescension and patronizing and all of this. And she exhibits, the, it, it, you know, just really exudes this icy demeanor. And so we should say right right away that in the 1940 version, she's played by Judith Anderson and Kristen Scott Thomas in the 2020 version. Ah, I thought I recognized her. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> all of that. So we've we've got her introduced now. Yeah. So we're going back to the scene with the Cupid because this is one of the scenes where this is one of two scenes, both involving Mrs. Danvers, where I thought that the 2020 version made some interesting choices that I find valid and some of the better scenes, I think, in the 2020 version. Yeah, yeah. And so one of them is the the confrontation over this Cupid, even the breaking of the Cupid. In the, in the 1940 version, it's sort of – it's just – it's one of several moments – where Joan is wandering through the house and kind of looking around, you know, as the new Mrs. De Winter and feeling out of place. Mm-hmm. And she's just sort of happening to be, you know, rummaging through some papers somewhere and knocks over the Cupid. And it's all sort of incidental. And yeah. she quickly sort of hushes it up and, and, and moves along. And then when the confrontation happens, it's, you know, Alfred, the person being accused, isn't even there. Uh, Mrs. Danvers isn't there in the beginning. It's just Frith explaining and then Mrs. Danvers comes up. And the whole thing sort of unfolds. And we get to have this interesting intimate moment between Mr. and Mrs. DeWinter as they discuss how they're going to explain this once she's confessed about it. But in the other version, in the 2020 version, it's this sort of confrontational moment. It's very tense and hostile. It it is. Yeah, it does. It does exude more a more direct tension, I think. Yeah. As she's brought in and accused and... With everybody sort of staring at her, and it's very yeah, you can feel very much this the smallness of Lily James as she's has to admit that it was her who broke it, and the way she broke it was in much more sort of um you know it feels like she's Belle wandering in the West Wing of you know, and she and it's yeah. sort of this enchanted 
object and she sort of like tries to handle it on this of all these beautiful objects and and drops it and it's this it's a more dramatic thing it's not an incidental thing with repercussions later it's even in itself we feel like ah something's happened here yeah and she cuts her hand and there's blood and you know and so there's just these more visceral dramatic things happening Mm -hmm. and i think it was a it was a choice that builds attention in an interesting way. I think we lose that little moment of intimacy and perhaps seeing the way that, you know, I feel in the 1940 version, I get, I get the idea that Olivier is, he doesn't see it as this big incident. He doesn't yeah. see, understand exactly why she's so intimidated, but we get that he is on her side. Yes. Whereas yes. in the other version, the, the way that, that, that Ben Wheatley is is choosing to take it is that she is antagonized by her husband as well. Exactly. It's one more nail in the coffin of their relationship. Yes. Uh, once she finally admits that that she broke it and that it was an accident, that she's sorry, she was scared, he looks at her the same way that a dad looks at their kid who dumped their ice cream on the floor. You know, he's just like, well, I suppose that's settled then and just kind of storms off glaring and grimacing and I mean, which does a tremendous job of making us feel more sympathetic for Mrs. DeWinter. Yes. But again, it's I, – f- I feel like the 2020 Netflix film kept forgetting to remind us that this was a marriage and that they were in love. And that, that that's one thing that I loved about the Hitchcock film is they always kept that spark there, at least in some glimmering state. Because like you say, the moment where they uh, – in the 1940s version when she is confronted about the – the china cupid that she broke yeah he looks at it almost kind of like wait what's broken oh no yeah that's one of our treasures oh geez all right well how did what, what happened oh well see there you go why didn't you tell them you know he when he asks her um once she admits that she broke it he tells her like well why you know why didn't you tell him he's just kind of incredulous because it's like what's the big deal you know what's what is, what is there to be so upset about and i think interestingly enough both of them accomplish roughly the same goal which is to show that they aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye just yet. Like yeah. he doesn't understand how afraid she is and how and how troubled she is. And that's clear in, in both films. But the, the 1940s version does a good job of keeping him sympathetic, of keeping him affectionate, of it's just one of many distractions, you know, and – Whereas in the 2020 film, it's it's moment number 32, about a half hour into the movie where he's like, yeah. why did I marry you kind of thing. Yeah. And I think they do serve as windows into the different approaches that they are taking. Yeah. yeah. In which in the 1940 version, I think Hitchcock is, is making – this is a love story where Rebecca is between them mm-hmm. somehow. Whereas in the other, it's – it's confusingly played a bit more as a as a romantic film overall, mm-hmm. but I think we're drifting much more to we're only sympathetic, I think, to Lily James. And, you know, there are yeah. moments where we gain more sympathy and come to understand more of what's happening with Army Hammer, but we're not meant to. I don't even think we're meant to f- to feel for him in the same way that we are in the 1940 version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one other scene briefly that I thought was effective in the line that they're trying to take in the 2020 version mm-hmm. is the incident with the menu and the sauces, which shows up in 
both versions. Mm. But in the 2020 version is a proper scene, and in the 1940 version is more of a passing moment in another scene. And that's where Mrs. Danvers comes to Mrs. De Winter and says, you know, for the for the dinner we're having, you know, as head of the household, it's your you know, job to approve the menus, uh, you know, as the, the lady of the house. And, you know, here you go. And, you know, and in both, she's very much flustered by that. You know, this is a woman who, you know, we get the idea that she, you know, when she breakfasted at all in her life, she, you know, had some porridge and she certainly wasn't thinking about like what, you know, the extravagance of menus probably doesn't even recognize a lot of the items that are up yeah. for consideration. And so she just sort of immediately tries to, oh, yes, you know, that's all fine. Yeah, it's great. But we get this sort of, in the 2020 version, we get this moment of she's trying to assume more responsibility. She's trying to be more willful. She's trying to work with Mrs. Danvers and take on the responsibility. And we get this moment of her sort of posturing and getting deflated in this awkward and embarrassing way that because she she says, oh, yes, yes, I've looked over it. It's all it's all good. And she says, and what about the sauces? Oh, yes, perfect. And then Mrs. Danvers says, oh, well, I've left the sauces blank. Like you're supposed to tell me which sauces you want. And then we see like, oh, she's she was just flustered and trying to yeah, move the situation yeah. along, which we don't get that at all in the 1940 version. In the 1940 version, she just says, oh, you'll notice I've left the sauces blank. And she kind of goes, oh, uh, uh, whatever sauce Rebecca would have wanted. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a moment that I thought uh, gives us another chance to see the condescension of Mrs. Mrs. Danvers, Danvers and the vulnerability of Lily James and who is just trying, trying so hard to fit in in this place. Yeah. And I think we do get a little bit more of Lily James trying to run this household and trying to um, exert herself. Mm -hmm. And in the 1940 version, I think we get a little bit more of she's just trying to connect to Max yeah, and whatever that takes. And if that means that she needs to kind of rise up and be the lady, well, she's going to try and figure out how to do that. But her, her main goal is just how do I preserve my relationship with Max? Yeah. Yeah. Which again, I think, yeah, I mean, for how many weird similarities there are, I do want to commend Netflix for just I, I'm I'm much more confused by the by the choices they made regarding Maxim than I am by the choices they made regarding Mrs. De Winter. I I I like that they tried to explore, and again, I guess this is another symptom of a newer, p potentially more progressive film is that they they made. I think that Mrs. De Winter is a a, a more proactive figure in the 2020 film, whereas. Throughout a lot of the 1940 film, a lot of what she is doing is reacting, and uh, which isn't a bad thing. That's just no, and I think it's what is. Hitchcock wants because yeah. she's. Uh, although both characters are vulnerable, there's such a vulnerability to mm -hmm. Joan Fontaine's performance. Yes, yeah. there's just this incredible. You know, you just have this feeling the entire time that if we squeeze too hard, she's just going to break. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I think lends itself to a nice. Tension in all of the scenes where pressure is applied because you don't you don't want her to break exactly and there's definitely something there for those who are more students of Hitchcock and the way that Hitchcock portrays women and the the nuances of that this is certainly not to the extent of some of his later films but we're seeing a woman under threat and what that means and how she's going to respond to that and how that vulnerability is going to be treated and and transferred to the audience yeah yeah. 
this actually kind of brings up in my mind. There's an, another. I guess this is a good time to introduce another character, Mister Favell, who we meet about partway through the film while Max is off on a trip in London taking care of estate business. Mrs. De Winter meets this guy, this kind of smooth, dapper gentleman who invites yeah. himself onto the property. Bit of a rogue we see right off. Yeah, bit of a rogue, bit of a smooth talker. Uh, and this is in both films, although the circumstances are a little bit different. He uh, he comes on. He In the Netflix film, he actually convinces Mrs. De Winter to try riding a horse with him, and they interact a bit. And uh, towards the end of the visit, in both films, actually, towards the end of both visits, he mentions, by the way, don't mention my visit to Mr. De Winter. He's not fond of me. You know, I'm not, I'm not exactly allowed around here. Yeah. And that introduces a little bit of tension because, again, Mrs. De Winter, up until this point, has been a bit afraid of upsetting her husband. And... You know, it just feels like she's walking on a razor's edge every day of of maintaining. Yeah, and well, I just want to quickly uh, to underline the point that we've been making a few times, mm -hmm. as we tend to do in this podcast. <laughs> um, I think in the twenty twenty version, she is afraid of upsetting her husband. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a fear of the way he might react. Whereas in the nineteen forty version, I also get the sense of, oh, but I don't lie to my husband like that's not something that i do like this would be you almost get the sense that this is would be the first time that she's withholding something mm -hmm. from him yeah yeah exactly and actually speaking to that a little bit um favel he comes in he, he factors into the story more and more as things progress but uh shortly after that scene like you said in the 2020 version there's this added tension of seems like every single thing upsets Mr. De Winters. It upsets Max. And so this is just one more thing on the pile. And I have a clip, kind of a, a cluster of mini clips. By mini, I mean micro, small clips I'd like to share. First with a clip from the 1940s film, then one from the, net, the 2020 Netflix, and then back again to the 1940s Hitchcock film. There are a few moments where, again, I can't speak too authoritatively on this, obviously, since I haven't actually read the book that they're both based on. But to me, it feels like it felt like they were doing their their take on some lines from the original film. Um, specifically, there is a scene in the 1940 film. In both films, there is a moment where there is a bit of, of civil disobedience by Mrs. De Winter, where Max tells her not to go to this little boathouse down by the down by the water, and she goes, and it upsets him. And they have a little confrontation in the 1940s film about it. And I'm just going to share this this brief little clip from that interaction. She she went to the boathouse trying to retrieve their dog, and he is upset at her. And we, at this point in the film, we don't really understand why he why he doesn't want her to go near that house. But uh, as as you listen to this clip. I would say pay a little bit of attention to the tenderness in Max's voice, the the dynamic between the two characters as he expresses his anger with her. Max, what is it? You, you look so angry. You know I didn't want you to go there, but you deliberately went. Why not? There was only a cottage down there and a strange man who was... You didn't go into the cottage, did you? Yes, the door... Well, don't go there again, do you hear? Well, why not? Because I hate the place, and if you had my memories, you wouldn't go there or talk about it or even think about it. What's the matter? Oh, I'm sorry, please. You should have stayed away. We should never have come back to Mandalay. 
Oh, what a fool I was. I made you unhappy. Somehow I've hurt you. Oh, I can't bear to see you like this. Because I love you so much. Do you? Do you? Ah, I've made you cry. Forgive me. I sometimes seem to fly off the handle for no reason at all. Okay, so right here we we get we actually this is one of the few moments in the Hitchcock film where I think we get to see genuine temper, a genuine temper in in Max's mm-hmm. character. We get to see him sort of snap and yell a bit. And specifically the line I'm I'm thinking of for this scene is when she says, you know, she doesn't like to see him this way and she says because I love you so much and he says, "Do you? Do you?" And but the the way I mean Obviously, the, the the physical performance sells it, but I think you can even tell just by the the dialogue that there is a there is a tenderness in it, and it's it's almost gosh, there's so much going on in that line where it's almost kind of a disbelief from a place of his own perception of his own self worth of yeah, like his self loathing and yeah yeah and well and I, I think just to say that you know it's the it's the whole the whole film is obviously working toward that end. We've got the music coming in, you know, in that strong studio style. And we've got the physical, the physicality and the way they're framed and the performances are clearly all trying to keep us very much in sympathy with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bear, bear, the, bear those lines in mind because they, they use them for a different scene in the Netflix film where he finds out that Mr. Favell was on the property. And what follows is a confrontation between the two of them. And after the scene, I'll, I'm going to share a clip from later in the 1940s film covering generally the same subject matter to kind of bring it all home. But uh, this is him in the 2020 film reacting to the news that Favel was on the property. Mr. Favell told me that she invited him here. Well, Mrs. Danvers, I suppose she forced you to go riding with him, did she? No, I can explain. Explain what? What I was going to tell you. Hmm? I was. Well, tell me how you dragged him down to the boathouse. Parade your fancy new nightclothes for him. How could you even think that? I would never even have let him on the property. If I'd known it would upset you, Max, then... Please. I love you. Oh, do you? Mrs. Danvers invited me. But I don't want to hear another word about Danvers! Okay, so in this sequence, you have a very similar exchange. She says, I love you, and he says, oh, do you? Yeah. And it's it's crazy because it's almost the exact opposite effect of in the 1940s film, he's thinking like, how could you possibly love me for how much of a mess I am? And in this one, he's thinking like, you know, oh, do you? Like, are you even worthy of being affectionate of me? <laughs> you know, there's, it's yeah, it's a very, it's a very different reading. And again, it's just it's in line with the the way that that he's sort of becoming a villain. Yeah, we, yeah. I think that that's what Ben Wheatley is trying to do is to turn him into a villain, 
And then, you know, and then turn that on its head. Yeah, and then kind of try and turn that on on its head, which is just a, a completely different approach from what Hitchcock and Selznick were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd also forgotten how baffling that. I mean, with uh, with the context of knowing how both films end and the secrets that he's dealing with, you can sort of piece together what's happening in that scene. But watching that scene, it is so baffling. Yeah, his, his immediate like jump to that that sort of jealousy and her parading yeah. you know which is so out of character for anything that he's seen with her exactly I exactly mean, i we can understand him being i mean you know jealousy is often irrational and we can understand his him being jealous of her but to jump immediately to this very specific sort of oh were you did you take him down to parade your nightclub it's just so unexpected exactly and, and so because of that it just feels purely malicious yeah uh because again as we said a little bit earlier her character is so quaint and charming and unassuming and gentle and and fragile that the idea again the fact that he would assume that at all about her makes me wonder again why did why did you get married if you think she's even capable of this we the audience know your wife better than you do yeah. <laughs> So to and then for one last comparison, so this is a confrontation over Favel visiting the property. The confrontation over this same thing doesn't happen actually until much later in the 1940s film, and it's as with many things, it's it's much more brief. So the context around this reveal is very very different, and it's actually a sequence we'll get to a little bit later. But they, she's about to tell him that Favel was on the property. And there was a cousin of hers, a man named Favelle. Yes, I know him. Came the day you went to London. Why didn't you tell me? I didn't like to. I, I thought it would remind you of Rebecca. Remind me? As if I needed reminding. So, I mean, very briefly, once again, this actually, this this kind of reaction happens a few times in the 1940s film, where... She does something that might seem slightly irrational, but given the context of her situation, you understand exactly why she would have kept this or that to herself. And each time he says, like, why didn't you tell me? Which, to me, is such a human reaction. There's, even at his low moments where he's supposed to be a little bit more kind of angry and volatile, he feels like a person that you wouldn't want to just throw in the bin. Yeah, I'll say that... I agree, but I, I I also think that the way Army Hammer plays the part is a very human reaction. It's just not a human that we are in sympathy, no, fond with. of. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It is a very I can I can see a person who is in that place. That's true. And responds that way, but he isn't someone that we're rooting for. You know, he's, yeah, he's someone yeah. that we're rooting against. Which again just comes down to that choice. Yeah. Mm, no. Yeah. That's a good point. This is actually helping me a little bit because I've been. Until now, I have been very confused as to why they would go to such lengths to make Max such an apparent villain in the 2020 film. And I can see that now that they, I think they wanted the ensuing twist to carry a bit more weight, which I don't know. I mean, for me, after seeing both films, obviously I was surprised in the 2020 film. Yeah. Um, but should we, should we jump right into yeah, the, let's the go twist ahead right and... now? So I want to start out just by asking you. Having watched the 2020 version, yeah, what your thoughts were there, and then if you felt, you know, if it was deflated for you by the 
you know, by having seen that one first. But I guess we should first explain what, yeah. what the twists are. So I guess first first things first, we should probably explain we've we've been a little bit vague about the nature of the former and first Mrs. De Winter's untimely demise. She had drowned. We find it out at different times in the films, but uh, in both in both versions. Uh, it's said that she drowned on her boat. Her boat capsized, it sank, and Max went to London to identify her body when it was discovered two months yeah, later. Two months later, in a in a different place, like currents had washed it away. Yeah, he's brought in, and he identifies it as Re- he identifies the body as Rebecca. Yeah, and the whole thing is chalked up as a as a great big tragedy, mm-hmm. and sort of that's you know case closed, so to speak. Yeah. So the catalyst for this big twist in both films is that a diver discovers her boat, which he had, you know, in both in both films, Max talks about how he had dreaded this moment happening. And uh, they find her original boat and they find a body inside of it. And at this moment, Max and Mrs. De Winters, the new and second Mrs. De Winters, have their their confrontation about this whole thing. At which point he reveals he did not love Rebecca. He hated her. And this is actually very different based on which film you watch. But in both films, he is responsible for her death. And we can talk about that because I I think the reason for the difference is – I don't know how much of it is I'm trying for sympathy. But I think as well, we also have to deal with the code. Mm -hmm. And the Hayes Code at the time would not have allowed – Something like even with the, I say even as if it's justified, but with the manipulations of Rebecca and the sort of person that we start to find out that she is and the relationship that we find out that she had with her husband in the 1940 version, the murder is still seen as an accident because Mm. we couldn't have a character. We couldn't be in sympathy with the character who gets away with murder. That wasn't allowed. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that was a change made for the film. Yeah, and I don't know again. I don't know if it was also a decision to keep us in stronger sympathy with Max because you know it, it's just an accident in the end. Because yeah, what happens is what we uh, the twist is twofold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're sort of bumbling around the explanation. So one of the things is that the haunting presence of Rebecca. And we've sort of skipped over some of Mrs. Danvers, which is some of the chilling, most chilling aspects of oh, the film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. these many things as we find, just this presence becomes more and more and more to the point that in the 2020 version, it starts to become subtly subjective until it's outright subjective. There are moments where she sees the crowd chanting, Rebecca, 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 at a party, which clearly is not happening in reality, yeah. but is rather a subjective experience that she's going through. And uh, it's it's much more subtle in the Hitchcock version. But in both cases, the, the presence of Rebecca, this ghost story aspect, this horror aspect is just overwhelming her. And the conclusion that she's come to, along with us and the audience, and that everybody seems to be purporting, is that he was so in love, Max was so in love with Rebecca, that this is the great tragedy of his life. And the reason that she is in the – and the thing that breaks her heart is not only that she's in the shadow of Rebecca for everyone else, but in the eyes of her husband, she will always be, you know, second fiddle to his first wife, the chic, the fabulous, the most beautiful creature, mm-hmm. you know, this Rebecca. Charismatic and beloved. Exactly. But the twist comes when we find out that he hated Rebecca. Yeah. Which I have to say – 
Joan's face in the 1940 version when he says hated the mixture of the sort of dark you see a little bit of that darkness of Hitchcock because there's this mixture of relief and also like delight yeah he's saying he hated her you know there's this it's you see these complex emotions all just portrayed in her face and it's wonderful yeah but yeah so so we find yeah that that he that he hated her and then there's this explanation that very early in, she's basically the a classic sort of gold digger, knowing that he wouldn't bring divorce to his, you know, a divorce scandal to the to the great name of De Winter. And she tells him, I think they say four days into into their marriage, she says basically, oh, I'm going to be, you know, it's hinted in the it's the fact that she's unfaithful to him is explicit in both versions. But the degree is much more explicit in the 2020 version. I mean, explicit in description. We don't, yeah. see, we don't see anything. But it, she says, basically, four days into the marriage, Rebecca does, oh, I'm not going to be faithful to you, you big chump. Now I've got all of your money and everything to play with. I'm going to carry on just as I want to, you know, stay out of my way yeah. sort of thing. And very soon she's, you know, cavorting with this and that man. And then she starts to essentially use the the beach cottage on the estate as her little love nest where she brings her men, mm-hmm. which we find out are, are multiple men that we've come in contact with. And chief among them is Favel, mm-hmm. her cousin, the dapper rogue who, yeah, she's basically carrying on a full-blown love affair that's very open, you know, right under his, right under his nose, right yeah. on his property. Um, and it infuriates him. And this culminates in both versions with him confronting her there and her saying, well, guess what? I'm going to have a child. It isn't your child. But because of the fact that we can't get a divorce, you're going to have to raise him as your child. He's going to inherit your family home. Your family name is now besmirched. And you're going to lavish your estate and all that you, you know, all of your family's everything on this bastard child that is the child of my love affairs and how do you feel about that mm. isn't that grand you know just taunting and taunting him taking out uh, has the gun mentioned in the 1940s version at it's all? not not at yeah. all so in the 1940 version he sort of loses his mind and he hits her and that's his basically his big moment and then we find that she's that Slightly after that, she's stumbled back and she's tripped over something. The cottage is kind of a mess with like ship's tackle and things. Yeah. And she struck her head on something. And when he sort of comes out of his temper, he, he finds her dead. And so we have, perhaps for the Hayes Code, this moment where we're very explicitly told, well, it's not quite his fault. He may have wanted it, but he didn't do it. It's kind of that infidelity equivalent of the finale of every Spider-Man film where he's, he won't kill, but the villain has to die. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. And what we get in the 2020 version is she takes a gun out. She's clearly taunting him. There's this odd sense of she's wanting this to happen, which, which comes later. But she gives him the gun. She presses it to her stomach. She says, come on. Essentially, she says, do it. Do it. And then the 2020 version, he does. Yeah. He, he falls under the moment and he shoots her as she's essentially taunting him to do. And then- And, and it's oh, worth noting, sorry, just real quick. It's worth noting that in both films, it's noted that she died with a smile. Like she's, yes. 
this is her thinking she's won. Yeah, this seems to be some chess move that she's making that we don't understand. Yeah. And he doesn't understand. Except to feel that he's always been since since the turn right after the marriage where she revealed herself, that he has constantly been manipulated by this woman to for you know, for all the world, she's the perfect wife. Uh, it seems to be, but he knows mm-hmm. her as this you know, this tormentor of his soul. Yeah, yeah. And in both versions, he takes the body out on her boat that she loved, uh, deliberately scuttles the boat, makes away in a dinghy, and that's the end of it. Until a body, which we come to find out was not her body, is washed up on the shore, discovered in some way a couple months later, and is in such a condition that he's able to go and lie saying that it is her body when it is not, bury her in the family crypt and, you know, begin to try and move on with the weight of this murder, essentially. Yeah, this foul deed. On his soul. And it's a great, it's, it's, it's really interesting when you look back at the approach both films took to Max's character, because in the 2020 film, as he is, confessing this story to Mrs. DeWinter and explaining the circumstances that led to him shooting his wife, I have been so sold on him being a terrible person that even as he is telling this story, I'm not entirely sure that I trust him. And I'm thinking as his new wife, I'd be thinking, am I next kind of a thing? Yeah. Which I think in a way kind of undercuts their goal because I think they're, I think part of their goal was we're supposed to think he's bad right up until the moment that we find out his story, but it took longer than I think they intended. I think I didn't start to really sympathize with him until maybe 10 minutes from the end of the film. I finally was like, ah, maybe he's not that bad. Whereas in the other, in the 1940s film, as he confesses it, suddenly all those moments of sadness, of wistful introspection, those moments where he he speaks as if he doesn't deserve her love or that yeah, even his flashes of temper all come into they all sort of click. Yeah, it all kind of falls into place. And so while the twist is maybe not quite as gratifying, I think that it is a bit more resonant and it, it it ends up functioning for me as a slightly better payoff. So I, again, you know, respect to them for wanting to put a different dynamic with his character, but I think it's a bit better executed in the uh, 1940s film. Uh, um, so this maybe leads us into the next section of the film, which is a, you know, the court, a court case and sort of resolution with another twist coming. And that's, you know, so, now, because of an incident at a big party, which we haven't spoke about, which has a, some key moments and everything. That's true. Yeah. But um, because of an incident during that, we find, you know, the, the body is discovered. It's turned out that this is Rebecca's boat with Rebecca's actual body there. Mm-hmm. So why is it that Max identified this other body? Is it the simple case of, you know, a husband in grief, a body in you know, a state of bloat and decay and whatever unpleasant things happen to bodies underwater. Yeah. So is it a mistake or is there something sinister here? And what we find is that our bounder, our rogue, our Jack Favell (laughs) certainly thinks that there is something foul going on. 
Yes. There's a, oh gosh, the dialogue in the Hitchcock film is so good. Yeah. He, when he's, he confronts the De Winters about his suspicions and what is it? I'm going to misquote it and I'm not going to do it justice. He, he says, you know, I do think that at some point uh, they're going to utter those, the, the, those terrible words, foul play. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, ah, gosh. It's another example of one of the things I, I, I'll just, Make a brief aside to say, I sort of determined that the I put the emphasis of a 1940 version on a sort of gothic, uh, these subtle undertones of gothic horror mm-hmm. and a sense of humor. Hitchcock mm-hmm. always had this sense of humor. That's this bit of wit to him. And the 2021 is there's a lot of melodrama and sensuality. Yeah. Which you know is at least different, and Favell does give us a chance to yeah in the, because in the 2020 version, although he is still the same sort of sly, wry kind of character, he's just he's I find him merely you know handsome and weasley and so yeah, on. He's whereas, just a person. Yes. Yeah, whereas the way that that George Sanders plays him. In the 1940 version, he's just, he's sort of delightfully malicious. He is. And part of this (laughs) must be down to, we just have to say, to George Sanders' incredible voice. I think so. He has a fantastic voice that everybody knows from childhood as the voice of Shere Khan. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a little bit of a chance to add some humor. And it also starts to play both films get to we get to kind of do this another switch it's remarkable that this film does another sort of turn mm-hmm. we have this strange wooing happening in monte carlo then we have all this gothic sort of ghostly stuff happening in mandalay and now we've got this odd sort of can they get away with this murder now that they're in sympathy together mm-hmm. and we've got the you know we've got them in the place of they're trying to cover up a murder and all of the the antagonists whom we don't like are the ones trying to solve the murder and get the guilty person actually punished. And so yeah. we, we're sort of flipping things. Our sympathies are now being twisted around yet again. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the reasons why Favelle does not buy this this idea that – because basically what Max says is that, well, yes, she did tell me that she was pregnant – I think she was trying to commit suicide, you know, and that's his that's his story. And people who know Rebecca and people who are in love with Rebecca in one form or another, which includes Favelle and Mrs. Danvers, say impossible. Rebecca was not the type, you know, she was this she's such a charismatic, full of life, you know, ruler of all she touches. There's no way that she's going to slip off and end her life that way. You know, that's just not her style. Yeah. And then what we find out is that Favelle has a note addressed with the date from that very day of her death, telling him to come that night because she's got some big news. And that's his sort of his... His ace in the hole. Yeah, his ace in the hole is, well, why would she commit suicide right after giving me this note telling me to meet her that night? Yeah. You know, clearly there's some some sort of foul play yeah yeah and it's 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 fun because the way that that's presented in the 2020 film 
it's presented in in their house in front of a fl- in front of a fireplace. I do think that I I do like the way that the 2020 film is shot and lit. There's a lot of good silhouette action and some cool use of color here and there, but it I don't think it holds a candle to the to yeah. Well, what happens is it's it's far more sinister in the 2020 version. It is. It's sinister and it's dark and it's blackmail and there's this, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And and there's and of course the the murder is more explicitly murder in the 2020 version. So there's all this darkness to it. Yeah. And what we get in Hitchcock's version is this this there's a sort of wit and nonchalance and this they're yeah. kind of you know it's more a little bit more of a chess match they're kind of trying each one is trying to bluff his way through the situation yeah yeah and i actually really i actually really like how it plays out in the 1940s version because i appreciated that in the hitchcock version favel is the one to present the idea of blackmail in the 2020 film which again i can understand why they did it uh, Mrs. De Winter steps forward and says, "Well, like, how much do you want?" Like she immediately says, "Like, what's it going to cost to keep you from saying anything?" Which I think you know they wanted her to to have a bit more of it. She she was kind of stepping into more of that active, proactive. Like she was becoming a more and more powerful person yeah. in the last portion of the movie. But uh, I, I I liked I, I liked the dialogue and the execution and the performance of of George Sanders just sort of saying, you know, like. You know, I I don't like being a used car salesman. You know, I've, yeah. I've, I've I'd love to get some ideas from you sometime about how to on how to live comfortably without having to work. Yeah. You know, like, and it's yeah, it's because it, it's 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 so delightfully brought off and so yeah. you know in, in this ribald way and everything. But it's um, also it, there's this malicious undertone of class, like yeah, you, like I am I deserve. To have what you have, like, why should you, like, yeah? Tell me, tell me sometime, why don't you, how to live comfortably without ever doing anything worthwhile? Yeah, how to just inherit (laughs) all of your position and wealth and happiness and so on. Yeah, I I love that because it's his character exudes. I I I don't know what the word is for it, but it's like this simultaneously sleazy, greasy kind of. Just a scuzz bag, and yet this this air of class, like yeah. which, yeah, that's just that's just George Sanders in a nutshell, I yeah. think, with the way he plays yeah. his characters. But yeah. I, I just love that, yeah. In the 1940s film, that blackmail attempt, it ends, uh, it does end up kickstarting the next sequence of events, but in a way that reflects well on Max's character because he does not take the bait. And again, yeah. le- like you say, Bo, that's there's. The, I, I think the idea of blackmail is a lot less scary in the 1940s version because he didn't – he has a bit of plausible deniability. He didn't shoot her square in the chest like he did yeah. in the 2020 version. Yeah. So you've got much more uh, blood on your hands with that one. Yep. Yeah. So as, as it kind of gets to the conclusion of this story, in both versions, we essentially find out uh, through a series of events that Rebecca was not in fact pregnant. She had cancer. And through sheer serendipitous joy, the the whole thing is a non-issue now. It's like, well, of course she would kill herself, and yeah. and and also to you as the viewer, it's kind of fun to 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 learn that and realize she was basically committing the spousal the spousal equivalent of what is sometimes referred to as suicide by cop. Yeah, you know, she's she her plan was to. She she did commit suicide that night. She just did it 
in a way that would also ruin the life of the man whose life she'd been ruining for yeah, a while. We we get a sense that she still holds Max in contempt for not being her version of a man yeah. who would have, you know, because we get the sense that she's the sort of woman who is almost like she would have respected him more if he came and slapped her around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's who she is. Like she, she says, oh, well, you're just going to let me, well, then I'm going to make sure to continue to burn, you know, and all the way to, I don't want to die painfully of cancer instead of just killing myself, you know, in a more classic way, I'm going to do this elaborate thing and I'm going to make you do it. And that's either going to, you know, merely haunt you for the rest of your life or it's going to get you killed as well. Yeah, yeah. And it also makes me wonder about that that concept that she, you know, again, both films kind of say she died smiling, which I think that's a bit multifaceted in that she died smiling in that, like we're saying, it's, she this one last little victory of hers to ruin his life with her own death. But also, I almost kind of wonder if it's also her smiling and that like there it is, you know, like like there's the man who was missing this whole time. You uh. know, like the like it's about time you had some vinegar in you, kind of thing. Like like so it, it, there's yeah there it's so funny because Rebecca is played by no one she yes. is not in the movie at all yeah in neither movie and this is what i wanted to to kind of perhaps finish with is yeah this character of rebecca she's not seen now technically you could say that maybe she's seen for a second in the 2020 version and that's because i don't know if you remember this but the opening of the film is narration in both films mm. and in the 1940 version, we have the future second or the second or whatever we want to call her. Joan Fontaine <laughs> is talking about Mandalay and, oh, Mandalay was this and this. And how could I have known what it would come to? And how could I have known how it would come to, you know, and all this foreshadowing that we get. Mm -hmm. And I don't even recall what Lily James is saying in the in the other one or how it's, it, but, it, but it opens with water and we see hair. Oh, right. Around. And of yeah. course, now we know that that's, Rebecca yeah. drowning. So if you want to call that seeing Rebecca, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but yes. Uh, so yeah, in, in neither version is she ever even seen. Mm -hmm. Not even portraits of her. Yeah. Um, we get some portraits that lead us to an adjacent thing, which is something we're not going to go into because we haven't. Yeah, just but, watch the movie to exactly. get these things we've missed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, in neither film is she ever even seen. But we get such a presence of her. And I don't know if this was the case for you. But in the in the 2020 version, I the way that I experienced preparation for this episode is I watched the 2020 version, having seen Hitchcock's version of Rebecca uh, years before. Mm -hmm. So I've seen Rebecca years before. I don't have it very crisp on my mind, but I know it. And I had actually forgotten that she was never seen, mm. Rebecca. I kind of had in my mind that there was that some there was some sort of flashback in the cottage scene, and we saw saw her for moments or her picture. The story he, t he tells is so vivid that you almost imagine it and think. Yeah, that well, you saw I just her. somehow in my mind I I had the idea that through some sort of flashbacks we see her at some point. Mm. So as we watch, as I'm watching the 2020 version, I'm going, ah, yes, you know. So, I yeah. So casting my mind back over the 1940 version, I sense Rebecca the woman. Not only the haunting feel of her, but the physical reality. Mm. 
Like I can picture her in my mind. Yeah. Personally, I see an English Rita Hayworth. Like it's in my <laughs> mind, bold, chic, vivacious. Yeah. And I'd forgotten that she was never shown, like I say. And even having just watched it again, I still – my mind almost tries to tell me like, no, no, no. You, you do see her for a moment. Like she's so vivid for me. Yeah. And that's where that sort of ghostly aspect comes in. And I'm not sure that I ever really get there with the 2020 version. I yeah. don't ever feel her presence as much, even though there's still a lot of the same – eerie scenes with mrs danvers the you know the that same there's a there's this really creepy sequence um you know that probably the most quote unquote creepy sequence of the of the film is mrs danvers sort of explaining the level of her affection for rebecca and the way that she's basically entombed half of the house as this shrine to rebecca's glory yeah deeply unsettling yeah it becomes yeah this unsettling scene which um, is a you know a treat for those of you who have somehow not watched the film yet. <laughs> so, and both versions have their interesting aspects there. But despite that, I never really get the same sense of the haunting presence of Rebecca herself that I do in the nineteen forty version. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd say it's I'd say it's very similar for me. Um, I, I, I strangely enough. Again, I think that the the new movie was so concerned with their twist that they forgot to lay the groundwork for the deeper aspects of these characters. M Max was meant to be a villain until he wasn't, and Rebecca was meant to be a charming, perfect woman until she wasn't. And by the time the twist comes, I'm so sold on Max being a scoundrel and Rebecca being perfect that the frugal attempts from that moment onward to paint her in a negative light, are so fleeting that you're left with kind of this muddled, vague, grayscale, blurry image of what she must have been like. Because, yeah, like the... That's interesting. I don't know that I got that, but I think that's probably a lot because I have seen... I had seen the 1941 before, so I knew yeah. all along that she was, you know, that she was not who she seemed to be yeah. to everyone else. So I think, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Point. And it was um, – I guess this is kind of – I guess I would call this kind of my closing thoughts on the movie is uh, one of the biggest thoughts I had watching it throughout the whole thing was the concept of – I already mentioned this once – a ghost story without any actual literal ghosts. The idea of of maybe 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 your ghost is just the lasting impact you leave on a place, you know, and it's the memories of the people you leave behind, which is why Rebecca is such a conundrum because you have Max who is quite as literally haunted by her as you can possibly be and you have the the now present second Mrs. De Winter, who is also haunted by her for different reasons, uh, in, a, in a sense of inadequacy. And then you have a character like Mrs. Danvers, who is- Sort of the keeper of the crypt, the, sort of the, it, making sure that the haunting continues. Exactly. She's sort of feeding the fire, and she she's almost single-handedly ensuring that the spirit of Rebecca remains in the house. It's just It's just a fascinating concept to me, the idea that a house could be haunted purely by its history and by a person so bombastic 
whether for better or for worse, that as long as you know, as long as there are people in the house who remember her for better or for worse, yeah, it's like her. It's like she's there. These, so these presences, which leads to here's. A, a, a new segment I'm breaking out for this very special episode. Ooh. Cheap Psychology with Bo. <laughs> so here we go. Cheap Psychology with Bo. Sweet. Joan Fontaine. Yes. Giving her wonderful performance in this film is the younger sister of Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland, um, who's just been in Gone with the Wind, you know, with Selznick picture. Olivia de Havilland the wildly famous Oscar-winning actress. They both won Oscars, both sisters. Hmm. Olivia de Havilland. Joan lived to 97, which isn't nothing. Olivia lived to 104 and died this year. Whoa! Yeah. Happy... uh, No. No. Um, Just... Sorry sorry for your loss. Okay. Well, keep... keep, uh... Nope. (laughs) Okay. So... My cheap psycholo- psychological take is that these sisters, and I mean this is re- this is real. They had a long-standing feud, uh, oh. a relationship where, <clears throat> for whatever reason, you know, a lot of this is gossip column stuff, and who knows exactly. But Olivia was allowed to take the family name. Olivia was favored by the mother. She was Olivia de Havilland, and she was, huh. I'd say, she is more remembered. They both won Oscars. It's not like Joan had a, you know a career that was entirely in the shadow of her sister or something like that. Yeah. But there was this feud. And I think that in the end, judging purely on who is remembered more, I think Olivia de Havilland is certainly remembered more hmm. despite their, their successes. And she was the one who was given the name by her mother and all that. And one can't help, or at least Bo can't help, but, <laughs> but, Wonder if that helps inform her performance of being overshadowed by this glamorous woman, this yeah. this sister envy in this relationship they have, where you know where the mother is favoring Olivia, where Olivia is sometimes getting more press. Uh, you know, I think Joan is actually the first one to win an Oscar, but you know, there's this rivalry going on throughout yeah. their, their long lives and their long careers, and it's just maybe another example of. The the comparison, you know, I mean, we talk often these days about the way that women are treated in film through comparisons. You know, it's all about um, how beautiful a woman is, how well she's doing this and this and comparing her to other women and ideals and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, and that's certainly what we're getting in this film of Rebecca, which she's being portrayed to what is seen as the ultimate ideal. You know, in both films, a man who is a sympathetic character. Who is yeah. trying to help the second Mrs. De Winter says, Oh, Rebecca was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. Yeah. You know, and just that just sort of has to hang over her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so to sum up, I suppose, I think that the story is filled with fascinating characters. And I think even if you're watching just the 2020 version, you're going to get. An interesting character study of the second future, future second, <laughs> present Mrs. Twinter, played by Lily James. I think Lily James does a good job. Yeah. I think that uh, Kristen Scott Thomas is 
a fairly serviceable Mrs. Danvers. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's It just feels so blatantly unfair, but it's one, you know, it can't be helped. Like yeah. when you, when you take, you, you know, it's that. like, exactly. It's when you grab a film, you know, a Hitchcock film, an Oscar winning film, and you remake it almost beat for beat. You're just inviting all of these comparisons. Yeah. And as, as great as the performances are, they, I just don't, I find they don't hold up. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. And I think that modern audiences might feel the same way, which is not to wander too far into this, but is also a testament to the fact that certain that there are more there's more than one acting style that leads to emotional resonance. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the 2020 version is taking place in a post-Marlon Brando world where there's a more of a quote unquote realism. It's not quite as stiff in the studio way that we get with Olivier and Fontaine. But my goodness, Olivier and Fontaine are manipulating us through the entire film. Yeah. You know, pulling our emotions exactly where they're meant to go. Exactly. Uh, and it's something to talk about a film that is able to execute two strong contri- contrivances without them becoming hammy gimmicks. And that's yeah. not naming the... Mrs. DeWinter character, uh-huh. and never seeing Rebecca. Yeah. And both of those could come off as very cheap, sort of like, oh, the writer thinks that uh, they're the writer having fun, you know, like, oh, did you, oh, tricky, tricky. But both of them, I mean, there you can almost not notice them. I, but, uh, yeah, I literally didn't notice them until after watching well, both there you films. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until after watching the Hitchcock one and starting to take my notes and realizing like, my word, she does not have a name. Yeah. And then realizing, my word, the movie is called Rebecca, and she is the central driving force behind most of the plot points, and we never even see her. Yep. That is, yeah. That's a, that's some avant-garde filmmaking, right? Wonderfully there. done. Uh, to talk about our, who is this film for? Mm. Sandwiching them together. Yeah. How pulling them apart. Never quite done it this way. I don't know exactly how yeah. to talk about it. Let's say... Well, let's talk about maybe briefly with your – do you think you would have preferred to have seen the 1940 version first? That's a good question. I think I would have. Um, of the two, I mean, clearly seeing it second didn't dramatically impact uh, my enjoyment of it. I will say the twist in the in the 2020 version really didn't hit me like the gut punch that I think it was intended to be. And even though it's not presented as a gut punch in the 1940s film, I think it might have engaged me a bit more to to go into that one blind. Yeah, I think it is a bit – I think had you not known, there's a little bit more to the – I mean, I still think of – to me, the big reveal isn't even the murder. In, in the 1940 version, it's not the murder. It's the line, it's, you thought that? No, I hated I Rebecca. I hated Rebecca, yeah. That moment is such a I I remember seeing it and going, "Oh wow." Like, yeah. Cuz you do watching it the first time, that is how you read so much of his he he feels like a sympathetic character, but it's you feel like, "Oh, that's just so it's so sad." Like 
He does love his new wife, but he just can't get over his grief over losing the first one. Mm -hmm. And then to find out, no, it's not that at all. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's the the delivery of the line and the buildup over the entire movie to that line. I would have loved to have seen the 1940s version with zero preconceptions. Um, That being said, I think, I, I mean, I personally feel like you couldn't go wrong seeing either of them. The the new one has gotten some bad reviews. Well, not bad, lukewarm reviews. And yeah. a lot of them have been for the same reasons we've covered, which is basically just that it doesn't justify its existence as a remake. Yeah, it just suffers by comparison. Yeah, yeah. If it existed in a vacuum, it would be fantastic. Because I, I really liked it when I when I saw it the night that I watched it. And then I saw the Hitchcock film and I realized, ah, yeah. I saw the lesser version first. It's hard for me um, to pull them apart. I don't know that I would go so far as to say that I really liked it, but there were certainly moments that I did that I did like. Mm-hmm. And I don't, although the actor, uh, I'm just going to give him a quick shout out here. Tom Goodman Hill, who played Frank in the 2020 version. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was probably my favorite performance, <laughs> which is kind <laughs> of a, a, a almost a throwaway role, yeah, I yeah. might say. But- that being said, I don't have any major complaints about the acting in the 2020 version. Even Army Hammer, who does come off as a bit more stilted, unsympathetic, and possibly abusive, <laughs> I, I still don't – it's the sum of so many choices rather than me thinking like, ah, here's an actor who's just not up to the part. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think – I still think that Army Hammer is a, is a terrific actor, and yeah, I, I think it's a testament to his acting that I, in spite of it all, I still kind of like, you know, I, I like this character because I like watching him act, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's all these little decisions that led to what would be ultimately a less effective version of the character. And I think, I think this all sort of serves to say that you know, it does show you how rare a masterpiece is. Like yeah. to get a film, I mean, making a film and all of its parts, all of the collaboration, all the choices, the, all the things that have to happen to make a film masterfully beautiful, it's a hard thing to do. And it just shows that you can make a decent film with the same story, with good actors, you know, pulling from a great novel. And, you know, with all these different, all these ducks in a row and still not rise to the height of this other film. Yeah. And I I think that just shows, again, how deft uh, Hitchcock and even Selznick were Mm -hmm. at filmmaking. You know, just how great Fontaine and Olivier were at acting and Sanders and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think... Are in the end, we're saying, go ahead and see both, but start with the 1940 version if, yeah. for some reason, you haven't seen it and you've listened to all these spoilers and things anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go go see the 1940s version so you can experience all these spoilers. And without- then go watch the 2020 version <laughs> even more. <laughs> even more spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I think I I think especially the 1940s Rebecca. I mean, obviously it's an older film, it's black and white. Uh it's got that kind of uh Vaseline on the camera for the pretty lady kind of technique that was very common back then, which 
I think is always a signature of, of older films is when you have the beautiful woman on, on camera and they backlit got, and yes, yeah, backlit smudge a little bit of grease on the lens, make her nice and foggy. Men love their women foggy. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I think it would, I, I think if you are interested in uh, kind of romantic thrillers and kind of gothic sort of pseudo not even horror just a suspenseful tense story yeah. with with I, I i completely agree on hitchcock's approach to humor i think he pulls off humor in a way that the marvel movies wish they were uh where he can inject a bit of levity into a tense situation or just a tense film in general and not have it feel like it's afraid to get real yeah um it's uh yeah that's it's just just good stuff um and in the meantime, when we before we started recording this episode, we were thinking this was since this was a special episode, it would be like a particularly short one because it's technically just one story. Yeah, goodness gracious. Uh, hopefully, the editing won't reflect this, but we are coming up on two and a half hours of recording for one, for for one story. One story, basically one and a half movies. Yeah. Hopefully, we didn't lose you guys on the way because I, I again, I think that's a testament to how much fun it Let's was to talk we, about this we movie. We can edit it down, but yeah. Yeah, um yeah, an interesting one. And well well worth seeing obviously. Uh and also if you're if you're a fan of Hitchcock, which if you like movies, you probably are, but you want to see something a little out of the norm. It's not quite mm. the, you know, it takes us a while to really understand why this was a story that Hitchcock may have dug into, and part of that may again be because he didn't have as much control as he did over um films when he was you know, when he was really Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the celebrity director. Uh, but it, it still fits nicely in his oeuvre and uh, is certainly worth seeing for, I mean, basically across the board, you know, performances, art direction, uh, cinematography. This This movie has it all. Yeah. This movie has it all. Well, you guys, thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in with us for this very, very special episode of Kicking and Streaming. It was a lot of fun. Um, uh, <laughs> 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 One of these days, I'm going to figure out how to close an episode. Uh, Just cut on. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> boom. <laughs> Yeah, gonna have to have some some good witticisms here. Roll, roll credits. Keep on, keep on uh, uh, kicking and, and streaming. Uh, have a good. We'll catch you next time. Uh, I'm Chris Bringhurst, and he's Bo. <laughs> 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 and and we'll catch you. We'll catch you on the on the flip side. We'll catch you next time. Yeah.